Tonight is the final lesson in a three-part series that we've done on what the Bible teaches about money. If you'll remember, a couple of weeks ago, Howard took us through the book of Proverbs, which has a lot to say about wealth and the way it's to be made and the way it's to be managed. Justin took us through the gospel accounts last Sunday. He made a major point of the fact that Jesus talked about money more often than he talked about many other subjects. And as Justin said... It's not always, sometimes it was just used as an illustration. But money is something that's important. It's something that we start dealing with at least as early as teenage years, sometimes before that, if you've got an allowance as a child. And it's something you're going to deal with the rest of your life. Your attitude towards money is very important, and the Bible has a lot to say about that. So tonight we want to look at what Paul, the Apostle Paul, says about money. And we're also going to throw in, since I took liberty since this is the last in the series, we're going to look at a few other references in the New Testament that weren't necessarily written by the Apostle Paul, but they will affirm the principles that he wrote. I've known about my assignment for several weeks now, and last Sunday afternoon I sat down just to sketch out an outline of the things that I had in mind that I thought Paul taught about uh, money in particular, and I was going to study those out in the days that followed. And then when I came to church last Sunday night, as I was listening to Justin's message, it struck me how similar the things that Jesus taught were the same things that Paul taught. And that was a great encouragement to me. It shouldn't be a surprise to us. It's the same spirit that inspires all the Bible. But it was an encouragement to see that the, those same principles that Paul talks about were the same ones that Jesus taught about. So tonight we want to look at five interrelated lessons from the Apostle Paul on the topic of money. Uh, you're getting the outlines now as they're being passed out. We're going to have the same kind of procedure that Justin did last week as far as skipping around to many different passages in the Bible. So you can either use this as a sword drill and check out where, how well you know where to look or you can just listen, whichever way works the best for you. The first lesson that we see from Paul is Work hard to earn money and use it to provide for the needs of your family. Paul taught this both by precept, by didactic teaching, and by his own personal example. And we want to first look at several places where he taught about precept. Look at Colossians chapter 3. He's addressing slaves at this point, but the principle, again, is just as valid for us as employees. He says in Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 22, Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Now we all unless we have our own business, we work for somebody on this earth. And we have earthly masters, as Paul said to the Colossians. But our ultimate master is always Christ. And regardless of how good or bad our earthly boss is, we really work to serve the Lord. We work to honor him. Now, depending on the arrangement, slaves at this time in the New Testament period might not earn the money, earn money the way that you and I do in our employment today, but they would still be working to earn their keep, as we say, and to provide for the needs of their families. So Paul points out, as I said, that their real master is not their earthly boss, and neither is ours, but Christ himself. He's the one whom we seek to please. 
Further, if you notice in this passage, we're not just working for earthly money to meet our present needs. That's certainly part of what we do. But as Paul points out, we're working for the Lord in light of a heavenly inheritance that he's already granted to us. That comes to us at the moment that we receive Christ and we become his. We get an inheritance that we have to wait for, just like you wait for an inheritance that passes down to you from your parents. But it's ours. It's reserved in heaven for us, Peter says. And we work in light of something already given to us. We don't work to earn that inheritance. It's already ours. But we work in light of what God has already done. Another church where work was a significant issue was at Thessalonica. And Paul has to address this issue in both of his letters to that church. You remember when he was there and in the letters that he followed up with them, he taught them a lot about the day of the Lord and the fact that they were to look expectantly for the coming of the Lord. But it seems that some of them had gotten a little too excited about that and they had abandoned their jobs and they weren't fulfilling their responsibilities. They were, in fact, living off the generosity of others. So Paul addresses this issue in both of his letters to this church. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 11, he writes, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. In his follow-up letter, he has to address this same issue again. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. This time he gets quite firm. It doesn't seem that the first letter had the impact that he desired to it for it to have. So he has to repeat himself and he gets pretty strong in his language. He says, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. You see this principle of you work to earn money to provide for your needs and the needs of your family. Finally, when Paul wrote to Timothy while he was at Ephesus, he included this as part of his instruction in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Boy, that's really strong language. But that's how serious the Lord takes our responsibility to work. Think about it. Even many unbelievers work hard to provide for their own families. How much more should we who name the name of Christ work in such a way that honors him, that provides for the needs of our families, and that you know, keeps us from living off the generosity of others? Paul also exemplified the importance of working to provide for his own needs by his personal example. As we look at these examples, we'll see they're in the same context of the earlier ones. In his letters to the Thessalonians, for example, he wrote in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship. He's talking about himself and Silas and Timothy as they were there among the Thessalonians. How working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And then in that second letter, when he got really strong with his language about those who were not willing to work shouldn't eat, he says just before that, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our, our example. Because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. 
not because we did not have the right to this, and they did. They did have a right to be freed up to give themselves fully to the ministry of the gospel. They didn't take advantage of that right. They worked to provide for their own needs so they could offer the gospel free of charge. So he says, not because we did not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, that you might follow our example. Then later on that same missionary journey where he had stopped at Thessalonica, Luke records this for us in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. After these things, he, that is Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them. And they were working, for by by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, that would have been on Saturdays, and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So the implication here is that when necessary, Paul was a bivocational pastor, bivocational missionary. He was willing to work and provide for his own needs when he had to. When Silas and Timothy came down, and I think there's a good chance that when they came down, they came down with monetary support that freed Paul up from having to continue to make tents and allowed him to devote himself completely to the word of God. Work is a gift from God. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden when God commanded them to tend the garden. It is the means that God has established for us to provide for the needs of our families. He gives each one of us different abilities and talents and experiences through the course of our lives. And we're to use those in our work for him. And we're to work in such a way, and we are working for him, ultimately. We're to work in such a way that honors him and that meets the needs of our household. The second lesson from Paul on money, and again, this was a lesson that that Justin illustrated from Jesus' teaching, is pay your taxes. Jesus said to render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Paul affirms that principle in the book of Romans when he's discussing the believer's obligation to those who rule over him in government. Turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 13. This is the only one that we'll be looking at for paying your taxes. And we're going to read some context here that provides the basis of that command first. So we'll begin in Romans 13, beginning in verse 1. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. So that's the basis upon which the command is given here later in verse 6. If you do what is evil, be afraid for it, that is government, does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in a subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Then verse 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes. 
For rulers are servants of God. That's true whether or not they recognize it. They're still servants of God. They're there by his appointment, even if they don't profess to know God. They're servants of God devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. I think we have to be careful here not to let our heritage as American citizens override our heritage as Christians. If you think back, one of the key reasons for the American Revolution was that our founding fathers did not like the taxation that was imposed upon them as a British colony. I think it's safe to say that Americans have been complaining about paying their taxes ever since. <clears throat> but as, as believers, we have to be careful about that. We have to be careful not to grouse about paying our taxes, even when we feel the government is not using that money wisely. They'll be the ones who have to give an account for how they spent the money. We'll have to give an account for how we paid according to God's command to us to pay our taxes. The third lesson from Paul on money is to beware the danger of loving money. That's a very strong lesson and one that occurs in a number of places in, in Paul's writings in the New Testament. Of course, this goes against the grain of the world in which we live, in which the pursuit of wealth is often the motivation for all kinds of life decisions, from the school you attend to the career that you choose, sometimes even to the person that you marry. Paul warns about the danger of loving money in two different places in his first letter to Timothy. If you look first, First Timothy chapter 3, this is part of the qualifications for elders, leaders in the church. It says in First Timothy chapter 3, verse 3, that they are to be free from the love of money. And then later in that same letter, he explains the danger of loving money, money in chapter 6. First Timothy 6, beginning at verse 9. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pain. Jesus, of course, put it much more succinctly and clearly when he said simply, you can't serve God and mammon. You've got to serve one or the other. And we should be clear that being wealthy in itself is not sinful. Uh, I'm going to refer to a couple of times to Randy Alcorn's book, Money, Eternity, and Possessions. He writes in that book, people may be moral or immoral, but things, including money, are morally neutral. And certainly we have examples in the Old Testament of men like Abraham and Job that were very wealthy in their day. And yet they also loved the Lord and walked faithfully before him. As we saw from the book of Proverbs, wealth and prosperity can be a natural result of following the principles that are in that book, of following biblical wisdom. But loving money and pursuing wealth for wealth's sake and trusting in riches are all sinful attitudes and carry with them additional temptations. Alcorn says again, he's already made the point, that money itself is morally neutral. But he says this, if this were a morally neutral world, we would expect money to be used in a morally neutral way. But the world is not neutral. It's sinful and under a curse. This is the problem with money. 
In a sinful world, money becomes something other than a neutral means of barter. It becomes an instrument of power. And in the hands of sinful people, power is perverted into oppression, and money becomes an object of worship, a false god. This is what Paul's warning against. And others in the New Testament confirm this warning against loving money. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. The author of Hebrews writes, Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. You can take that to the bank. That's a promise upon which is much better than any amount of money that you have saved up. James writes about riches in a number of different places in his letter. He talks about riches and poverty. But without question, the strongest warning against the danger of loving money comes in James chapter 5. It's a very strong denunciation of those who are rich, not because they're rich, but because what their riches have led to. James 5 says this, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you've stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. Now think about that. And this is a principle that we see a lot in our own experience. Those that are wealthy can never get enough. Wealth turns to greed, and greed makes people do things that make no sense at all. I mean, they already have millions of dollars, many folks. You think about a guy like Howard Hughes, it just messed him up. You think of, you hear about people who win the lottery and have millions of dollars come to them that they've never had before, and it makes their life much worse rather than better. The outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. In this case, evidently these people that were already quite rich were not even paying their laborers who were mowing their fields. You've lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Riches can be a very dangerous thing. Um, again, it's not the wealth itself. There are wealthy people today. There are wealthy women who supported the ministry of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man who came and asked for the body of Jesus. It's not the wealth itself. It's what often leads people who are wealthy. It's the temptations and and attitudes to which they're led that cause the problem. The fourth lesson from Paul on money, and this goes hand in hand with the previous lesson of not loving money, is to be content with what God provides and enjoy all of his good gifts. Again, Paul teaches contentment both by precept and by his personal example. Let's look first by precept in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And again, these are some verses that were just before the ones we read earlier. Paul says this, and he's saying this in the context of those who are willing to teach false doctrine for gain, are willing to, to represent themselves as Christian teachers in order to get money. That's a problem that was not only there in Paul's day, it's one that's here today in spades. Here's what he says, though, in contrast to that. 
In contrast to those who see godliness as a means of gain, he says in verse 6 of 1 Timothy 6, Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we've brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Hebrews 13.5 is worth repeating here. Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Paul's personal example of contentment is seen very clearly in his letter to the Philippians. You remember the context in which he wrote that letter. He was under house arrest in Rome. He'd already been imprisoned in Caesarea for two years. And now he's near the end of two years of house arrest in Rome. Now, certainly, he had freedom uh, under house arrest. For example, people could come and visit him. He could teach on the kingdom of God. He evangelized the whole Praetorian Guard while he was under a house arrest. But that meant, too, that he was chained to a soldier, and those soldiers had to be swapped out periodically. So he was certainly restricted in his activities as well. What's amazing is, in light of those circumstances, and in light of four years of being in imprisonment, Paul writes this letter to the Philippians that's full of joy. That is the thing that we think about when we think about the letter to the Philippians, is joy and rejoicing. So the question is, how can this be? How could somebody that had been in prison for four years, and even while he was in prison, was hearing about people that were preaching the gospel really out of spite for him in some cases, how could he maintain such joy? And he tells us. He tells us in the letter itself. Philippians 4, beginning in verse 11. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. Paul was not an ascetic. He was not somebody that strove to be poor all the time. There are certainly times in his life when he did enjoy prosperity. The key was he was content in either situation. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So the question then becomes, how could Paul be content in every circumstance? I think you guys know the answer to that. He knew that God was in control of his circumstances. He knew that God's love for him was unchanging. He knew that God would never forsake him. He knew that his hope and salvation in Christ were secure. And he knew that God would supply all of his needs according to his riches and glory in Christ. The fact is, we know every one of those things too. We can rest in that. And we can be content regardless of our circumstance. Now, of course, we need to recognize that we live in a world that is very anti-contentment, especially at this time of year. I mean, we have a whole industry, the advertising industry, is built on making people discontent with what they have and making them think that they need something new and, and more of it. The best way not to fall prey to that is to adopt Paul's attitude rather than the world's and be content with what God provides. Conversely, we need to recognize that asceticism is not the answer either. Asceticism is basically a philosophy that says the less you own, the more spiritual you are. The Bible doesn't teach that. Martin Luther said with reference to this philosophy, quote, 
If silver and gold are things evil in themselves, then those who keep away from them deserve to be praised. But if they, silver and gold, are good creatures of God, which we can use both for the needs of our neighbor and for the glory of God, is not a person silly, yes, even unthankful to God, if he refrains from them as if they were evil. Paul himself also spoke against this philosophy when he wrote in 1 Timothy 4, speaking about men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. So again, the key is not to take a vow of poverty. People have tried that in church history. And there are probably some temptations that go by the wayside if you have less money. But the key is to be content with what God provides and to rejoice in every good gift that he gives in this life. The fifth and final lesson from Paul on money is to give freely, both for the needs of the saints and the advance of God's kingdom. We want to look at two passages that are very much related to one another and and glean some principles for this. 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, that is chapters 8 and 9. The context of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is the collection for the saints in Jerusalem that Paul had already written about in his first letter in chapter 16. Something seems to have impeded the collection from being finished, and Paul's encouraging them to complete what they had begun in 2 Corinthians. We want to see from these chapters, from both of these sections, four principles for giving that we can glean from these passages which are very relevant for us today. First, our giving, and our giving to the Lord's work in particular, should be planned and systematic. 1 Corinthians 16.2 says that on the first day of every week, that is on Sunday, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, and that no collections be made when I come. He wanted them to go ahead and do it and not be under the pressure of the moment when he got there. 2 Corinthians 9.5 said, So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift that the same might be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. I think all of us have felt that pressure before. It's one thing to think, even to think for the coming year, this is what I'm going to give to the Lord before any pressures of bills, before any pressures of other obligations. Granted, you're doing that As an act of faith, you don't know what's going to come in the coming year. But the converse of that is to say, okay, I'm going to meet all my obligations first, and then I'll give whatever's left over to the Lord. That's not what he's asking us to do here. He's saying to be planned, to be thoughtful, to be systematic, so that it won't be affected by greediness or covetousness. I think that's a real application for us in our church, not only to our general ops budget, but also to grace promise. We need to make giving a priority in our finances. The second principle is that giving should be proportional. Verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 16, on the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper. Or another way to translate that phrase is to the extent that God has prospered you, that no collections be made when I come. You think about it, God blesses each one of us differently. 
We don't all have the same occupations. We don't all have the same incomes. We have different responsibilities, different family sizes, different financial obligations. God does not ask us all to give the same amount of money. But he does require that we be good stewards of all that he's entrusted to us, to each one of us. To go one step further, the New Testament doesn't even specify a percentage of income that we should give to the Lord as the Old Testament did. We talked a little bit in our series about the tithe. It was a percentage, an explicit percentage in the Old Testament. The New Testament doesn't do that. I'm not arguing against tithing. I think it's a great place to start. That's all that it is, really, is a starting point. For some, with a lower income, 10% is a, it's a huge sacrifice. For others, 10% is just nothing. They could give much more. It's ultimately between you and the Lord as to what you give. So an amount or a percentage of income is not spelled out in the New Testament in its instruction to the church. The next principle that we get from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and 1 Corinthians 16 is that giving should be done in light of the law of the harvest. 2 Corinthians 9 6 says, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. That's a pretty basic principle in farming, right? If you want a more abundant crop, you sow more seed. Well, in the verses that follow in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul takes that principle of physical planting and harvesting and applies it to the spiritual harvest that we all participate as believers. 2 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 8. God is able to make all grace overflow to you so that because you have enough of everything in every way at all times, you will overflow in every good work. Just as it is written, he has scattered widely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness remains forever now god who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will multiply will provide and multiply your supply of seed and will cause the harvest of your righteousness to grow you'll be enriched in every way so that you may be generous on every occasion which is producing through us thanksgiving to god because the service of this ministry is not only providing for the needs of the saints but is also overflowing with many thanks to god So we commit in advance and by faith to give, knowing that God will provide for our needs. And he will even bless and multiply our resources in such a way, not that we get richer ourselves, and our attitude is really important in this. We don't give in order to get rich. We give so that God will multiply our resources so we can give more. Finally, the last principle that we draw from 2 Corinthians 9 is giving should be done voluntarily and cheerfully, not under compulsion. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This affirms what I said earlier, that it's not a percentage. It's what you purpose to give in your heart. And certainly, I think as God matures you in the faith, that is going to increase. The amount that you give is going to increase. But it's not spelled out in the New Testament. God is much more concerned with the attitude in which we give than the amount. But having said that, the two are not unrelated. Giving is one of the ways that we worship God in response to all that he has done for us. 
we're truly grateful for all of his blessings, both material and spiritual, we'll gladly recognize him as the source of all we have and thank him by giving a portion back. That's what worship is. It's recognizing God for who he is and what he's done. And one of the ways that we do that is through giving back to him what he's blessed us with. It all belongs to him. It all came from him. We're just stewards. That brings me to a closing word, two words actually. If we had to sum up our responsibility towards God in the area of our finances, if we had to sum that up in one word, it would be stewardship. I think that's the best word. Again, Alcorn says this, A steward is someone entrusted with another's wealth or property and charged with the responsibility of managing it in the owner's best interest. A steward is entrusted with sufficient resources and the authority to carry out his designated responsibilities. Stewardship isn't a subcategory of the Christian life. Stewardship is the Christian life. After all, what is stewardship except that God has entrusted to us life, time, talents, money, possessions, family, and his grace? In each case, he evaluates how we regard what he has entrusted to us and what we do with it. The second word that I would say that's helpful to keep in mind with regard to to giving and to finances in general is balance. The Bible consistently warns us about the danger of loving and serving money, but it does not call us to a life of poverty. There is no virtue in poverty in and of itself. We're to enjoy and give thanks for all the good gifts that God provides. So the ideal state is really between these two extremes. And that's exactly what Augur says in Proverbs chapter 30. Two things I've asked of thee. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. Does that not sound like contentment? Lest I be full and deny thee and say, who is the Lord? That's the danger on one hand. Or, lest I be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. I said two words, but I also want to give you this book recommendation. And this is the book that I've been quoting from, Randy Alcorn, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. It's the best thing that I've read on the subject. He deals with all different kinds of issues related to finances. It's very biblical. You can pick up a copy on Amazon for about 15 bucks, brand new. But in the interest of smart stewardship, you can get a used copy for about five. It's got the same words in it. It'll be the same edification. So it's a very good investment. We have this in our library, and uh, I would strongly encourage you to read it. I, I would love to teach a class on this or somebody to teach one in the, in the year to come. But you look on Amazon, I think this is a copy that you'll, uh, a book that you'll go back to as a reference. And it's written in such a way, Alcorn is a very good writer. It's written in such a way that you can just skim through the contents and go to a particular issue of finances that you're wanting to look at and read it. Thank you for your attention. Let's have a word of prayer together and we'll be dismissed. Father, we do recognize that we are blessed people because we belong to you, first and foremost. And we recognize that you are a loving, heavenly Father that provides for all of our needs. We recognize that you do that in different ways all over the world.
but that we can be content in whatever circumstance that we find ourselves in because one of our security in you, the security that we have in you and in our salvation through Christ. But we also recognize that you bless us in different ways, in different portions, according to your own will. And we want to be faithful as stewards. We want to recognize that everything that we have comes from you. And we want to be good managers, not only of the money that you entrust to us, but everything else. The time, the possessions, the abilities. Lord, help us in that. Help us to be faithful in this coming new year. Help us to work in such a way that it honors you and that people see a difference in the way that we do our work. We recognize that that's one of the ways that we witness for you. Help us to always keep before us that you are our ultimate master and you're the one that will stand before at the end of our lives. And we want to hear you say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Thank you for the time we've had together tonight. I thank you for this series. And I just pray that as a church body, you'll help us to be good stewards of all that you've entrusted to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.